Blog Talk Radio. Network with my co-host Dave Duenas. Hello, hello, hello. On with me here too. There he is. Um, I'm so excited uh, to be doing this with you, Dave. Um, Each each week, we we're just going to cover cover a different subject and talk to different people. Um, I worked in uh, boxing the last ten years and in politics, and I've really just had the opportunity to come across some really amazing, interesting people and some topics that you know, people don't necessarily have a good handle on, including me. And I'm kind of the type that if I, if I don't understand it, I'm going to go dig in and try to try to learn about it. So that's, that's how I end up meeting a lot of these folks. And that's, um, so today we're talking refugees and that's how I met um, our first guest, um, Jani Deng. He is, um, he was a refugee from Sudan. Um, he was part of a contingent of 4,000 Sudanese refugees that were resettled in Arizona uh, Janie, thanks for joining us. Yes, can we? Uh, Janie, yeah. there you are. Hello, hello, can you guys? Hello, hear me? thanks for joining us. Hi. Yes. Hi, I we can barely hear you. So you can get close. What's that? I say thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. If you can get closer to your phone or you know your mic, um, we just can't quite hear you that well. But um, Janie, I met when the Syrian refugee. Um, topic was hot in the news a few years ago. I guess it's been about five years now. And I had the opportunity to kind of track him down because I had heard of the Lost Boys here in Phoenix. Um, And he sat down with me for like an hour and a half. And he said he was getting a lot of interview requests from like local news stations, but he wouldn't interview with them. And he sat down with me. So I appreciate that, Janny. We did a good story together. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. Um, they were, so the Lost Boys, and I also have, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Holly Cooper. Holly Cooper's on the line as well. She is a humanitarian and attorney based in in California, but she is nationally recognized as a voice in the space of immigration. She does immigration, um, training for, um, for immigration attorneys across the country. And she fights very hard every day for the fight, the rights of immigrant detainees and her role as the co-director of UC Davis Law School's Immigration uh, Department. Is that right, Holly? That's correct. Thank you for having me. And All I'm right. to be here with um, Jenny. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, and so in getting this all scheduled, I, I found out that Holly actually used to work with the Lost Boys here in Phoenix. So you guys may, or, I know that you said you weren't sure if you'd met him specifically, but your, your paths certainly crossed. 
Yes, definitely worked a lot with the Lost Boys Center, working with for the Florence Project um, for six years. Okay. Um, yeah, hi, hi, Ali. Hi. Thanks for all your your work. Uh, we couldn't have gotten people out without you. Um. So today I just want to talk a little about Janie's story and then also kind of address some of the misconceptions about refugees and, and help educate the listeners about the process that refugees really have to go through, that it's not necessarily I'm going to infiltrate this refugee camp and, and automatically be sent to, you know, California. It's, there's a, there's a the process and, and a lot of people don't understand it. I want to talk a little today, Holly, also about how things have changed. Um, under the Trump administration. But first, I'm going to ask Janie to kind of tell us just the breakdown of your story. You were, um, start with, you know, actually leaving your village in, in Sudan. Yeah. Thank you for having me again. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, this is wonderful. And so I think, you know, Holly and I, we worked together, you know, when she was here in Phoenix. So that's oh, okay. Over there, <laughs> you know, in California and stuff. You know, this topic, it's, uh, uh, and, you know, it's never going to get a hold at all because, we, it, you know, it's always, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's always going to continue to come up, uh, you know, because we do have people that who are, uh, you know, in a vulnerable position, uh, uh, you know, like place around the world and still are, and, uh, uh, uh that, but you know, America is turning the back on some of these people that who can be, you know. Also, of course, not everybody can just come over and have the fan. But we, you know, like you said, Emily, we have to, you know, I have to go over, you know, the vetting process. It took over five years before they even think, and and sometimes it doesn't happen uh, that you think you're gonna go anywhere, you know, in whatever the refugee camp you are in. So. Um, let me jump really quickly on when I left South so so Sudan used to now it's South Sudan. So at that time it was Sudan because it was under one country until 2011. The uh, South Sudan become their own nation. So, but at that time I was living in the villages that's so called now South Sudan. Uh, so when I left my village, I was only seven years old. And you could imagine for a young kid, you know, uh, when the uh, when the fight in- interrupted in my village. So I knew, like, right away, uh, you know, that I have to run away. That's the only way. And maybe come back. So that's always the truth. They, you know, the truth of all of us, we think we, maybe we're going to come back. Uh, we think we're going to come back to the, you know, like to the village. Because our life was kind of based on our animal stuff. So they like our lifeline. We have cows, goats, sheep. So as a young boy, as an eight, five-year-old, as soon as you can start walking, you go after cattle. So that was your job. That was my job. Very much with all the other boys, their jobs. So you go and take care of those cows. That was it. We never got to school. You know, even though they were the city within Sudan, I never see the city until I get to run away, until I get to walk, go to Ethiopia, and then eventually Kenya. So 
my life was just very, very much I always called myself, uh, you know, for many of us, we called ourselves, we were the cowboys before we find out that the cowboys in America. <laughs> right. Yeah, because we, you know, very much uh, we go our, after our animals. So, uh, literally, I went away in that village for the first week thinking that we're going to go back. So what I didn't understand at that time, and my young age, and my child, you know, my child just changed right then. I mean, my world just, just been a little bit been stolen from me. So, um, it, 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 you know, like realizing I don't have, to, you know, I didn't, I didn't see any of my, you know, my siblings, you know, my parents, everybody that I'm close that thinking of closer because everybody was just running on their own life pretty much. So you never reconnected with your family after that or, or. And until literally very much until uh, like, I didn't relocate uh, them where they were until like six uh, years later when I was already away from, uh, from the Sudan. Oh, wow. Wow. Let me, can I ask you something really quick? You know, because. Yes. Yes. I, you know, I knew I have a really good friend that that was that grew up in Nicaragua when the war was happening and they had to migrate over here to the States. And he talked about the culture shock um, yeah. of him leaving, right. you know, leaving there to come here to the States and stuff. But we always know, like, the effect that what happens with the kids. But, you know, your parents have been there for their practice their whole lives. Do they ever adjust? You know, I mean, do do they ever adjust to what they have had to drastically changed, not just for themselves, but for you as well? Yes. Yes. Like literally, it's, I mean, it was, it was adjustment for everybody. It doesn't matter. The kids, the dogs. So literally, uh, it, 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 I mean, so even just going to different countries within Africa, it was adjustment for me because now we are always in a, in a different, honest, unfamiliar territory very much so hmm. like i'm so now my my life completely just changed because now i'm i'm living in whatever the country were at that and my case within ethiopia and then kenya i was living there as Robert G from that country so literally i was illegal to live in their land uh, 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 uh the so the support that we're supposed to be getting we did the red cross the united nations and this other donor, uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't very much at the time uh, when we first get into this area. So literally, we have to adjust within starvation, within the camp, uh, diseases, uh, things like cholera. I, I mean, I can just go on, you know, some of the animals. Right. You know, I mean, you can, I can just go down the list. Not only just when we're walking, that we're facing all of that along the walk. But also, when we, we did get into the, whatever the destination is, we're facing with unfamiliar territory, whatever the yeah. around us. I, I, I mean, even as an adult, like listening to this, how confusing that could all be for somebody. But you imagine for a child, how confusing everything is, you know, happening at such a, as a, at a pace that you're experiencing that. That's just, wow. And I think, Janie, you said that when – when we talked before that while you were in the camp and you were going through the, first of all, you had to walk on foot a thousand miles to get to That's right. the Over final more, refugee yeah, camp, exactly. correct? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. yep. Yes. 
Yes. Wow. And without clothes, without supplies, just walking. That's right. Nothing. Literally, along the way, literally, we just, I, you know, I remember, you know, going for almost two to three weeks without eating any actual, any food to eat along the way. And to be clear, you're leaving Sudan, South Sudan, because right. of the, there's a, a civil, civil war. war. That's and right. That, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in the, so the civil, when you went through the yeah. process of actually applying for refugee status, one right. of the challenges that you mentioned, can you talk a little about the interpreters and how you had to, first of all, talk to us a little about the vetting process and also about, yes. you know, what happens with the interpreters and how they aren't necessarily very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> so Some of them. when I finally, yes. So when I finally able to reach into the camp, uh, we just, this is like a year later on. So first we have to go to Ethiopia. So this is 1980s. So from 86, to be exact, that's when I get into Ethiopia. Uh, from 86 until 1991, now we've been driven out from Ethiopia because they, they were having their own civil war was going on. They were having a new regime change at that time. So they have to get rid of mm-hmm. this, another dictator. Uh, so, the, so the new government was taken over. Because of that, uh, uh, we have to be forced again to move back. To, to South Sudan, we, just, we were just left five, four years before. There was nothing there. So now we started walking towards Kenya, which, because which will, was the, our other border, closer that we think that we can get safety at. So in Kenya, Robaji's camp, which is the, this camp called Kakuma Robaji's camp, it's, uh, it's, in, it's, in the one of the, it's in one of the worst areas in Kenya. I mean, territory-wide, we were faced with so many... Uh, first of all, we have to get there by walking with foot over three months before, before, you know, before we get to this camp. We have to face so much along the way. God, so, wow. So, and you could imagine along the way we lost so many children at, at that time. Kids. So we, we uh, by the time, you know, only a few people left to, to actually be in this camp. So, uh, so, I get there in that camp, Robert camp in Kenya, about like almost like a little bit of spring of 1992. So for the whole year, we were walking. We were just wandering in the wilderness, absolutely just surviving from nothing. So we, you know, I first get there. That was the first, uh, uh, that was my first foot in that camp. Well, so about a settlement agency and also all of these that so you can get to, to have a, a settlement agency to, to take you somewhere. That was not even a talk at that time when I first got there. So it didn't, uh, they, so, they, so the UN and the Red Cross uh, and the country that was hosting us, which is, was Kenya, it was, it was a big standoff. They don't want us to be in this camp. So the Kenyan government, you know, like all, the, like all the politics, of course, they want to be compensated because now we are in their land and they feel like they've been taken advantage of. So right. They need the money for the, for the listing of the land uh, to, for, to have a mass of these people here, even though our situation is so desperate when humans should be helping humans when things are happening, but sometimes that's not how it always goes. So, uh, 
maybe I would say about a year or so, now we started hearing that there are a Canadian government, the U.S. government, and Australia government are thinking about resulting some refugees. And that's, so the rumor started coming, but nothing was really was going on. At that time, what they would try to do, they tried to, to get a referral. They have to do a referral. To, the U.N. have to do a referral to the, these host countries that we're going to take you somewhere to their country. So can I, they, can I, at, yes. Can I just, uh, I just want to ask you, because in the beginning uh, when you came on, it was really choppy, so I might have missed some stuff because I couldn't hear very well. Yeah. But could you, okay. you explain? Okay, so I know you were separated from your, your parents. When you walked that thousand miles, were you, yeah. were you alone? I mean, uh, as, as a child, or were you at least with somebody that, w- that, that was familiar to you when you had a walk there? Could you explain that? Yeah, I, uh, yeah. So when we had to walk, so we have a few other uh, boys at that time that will get to, uh, we probably, I would say to be exact number, we start mm-hmm. off with 500 uh, kids. At that time, oh, wow. by the time we get to to this refugee camp, I mean, it was massive. You know, throughout the South Sudan, people, you know, the people was was everywhere, just wondering, you know, whatever they can get safety. Uh, but in my group, we were 500 of us. By the time we get to the camp, refugee camp in Kenya, probably mm-hmm. I remember, maybe only like half of that are left. Oh man, I and can't even imagine that. Rest, and the rest were presumed dead, you know, along the way, either by, anim- by uh, you know, by wild animal, the starvation, diseases. You, ne- you could imagine and even try to find, you know, along the way what really happened to these people. So you're witnessing all this. Let me ask you this. You're witnessing, yeah. you're seeing yeah. all of this. You know, death is basically mm-hmm. all around you. Kids are starving. That's animals it. are taking them. Right. Uh, well, I mean, what were your, what was your mind for? Like, you were you already mentally possibly happy to you? I mean, or, or is this just a, a will of I gotta get to this camp? You know, what was going through your mind at that time? That's right. So I always said, every time I do this interview, I go speak and all this about my story. I always tell people, I said, you know, people always ask the same what you just asked right now. So mm-hmm. what, what kept me going? What was the, what was the, the so much of that it's. It kept me going. I remember I have literally for myself, I would determine I need to get to whatever I need to get to. Right. I was so, so I always said, I'm, I, was, you know, I was so stubborn to make sure I am not going to leave behind, even though I was a tiny, tiny, tiny little boy out of all some of the boys that were bigger than me. I was not going to be behind. I'm going to be in the pack of the leader. Whatever the leader, uh, whatever the leader of the pack was, leader of the pack, right? I want to make right. sure I don't want to let behind to be eating by wild animals, and that was my. So I was very much stubborn uh, person because of that. I think part of it, and plus it wasn't, it wasn't not my day at that time. So I think part of it was combined with that I was a fighter. I had to fight and fight and fight to make sure I survived. Yeah, and it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like that's exactly what you had to do. Um, right. Danny, once right. you got to the States, once you came here, eventually ended up in Phoenix. Um, yeah. What, what was one of the big differences between your, your living situation in, in Sudan and, and here was yeah. that everybody's like every man for himself versus in the villages That's where everybody right. kind of takes care of each other, correct? That's right. That's right. <laughs> that was un- unfamiliar territory here. Because, so, but, 
so during the so during the camp, so just let me just track back a little bit. So during the camp, right, I ended up running into one of my brothers in the camp in in Kenya. So we ended up uh, finally after six years we've been you know almost after six years we've been separated. We finally uh, we actually run into each other in the camp. We just literally like accidentally run into each other. Uh, so how, he how was that? Like how, how did that? Happen? Like where we're at, you know? I mean, yeah, how did it, that happen? It, yeah, little, yeah, so it was happening in the camp in Kenya. So, wow. and it was like literally, uh, 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 the, the, it was just luck because it doesn't happen like that. So that's part of our story. And actually, because of that, you, you know, we have a movie called The Good Lie. You know, it's actually, that movie is based on almost like my story and my brother, actually, on, on wow. how we met. Yeah. Oh, wow. The Good yeah, Lie. So, we'll put uh, that in the, the show notes. I didn't know that was a, a movie about you guys. Yeah, The Good Lie. It was uh, about the Lord Boy. So Reese Witherspoon, actually, she starred on it. Yeah. And, and uh, just we to did clarify, a lot the, Lost Boys, the Lost Boys were named that by some documentarians, right? It wasn't like, because yes. there right. are refugees from right. all over, but the label got That's put right. on you guys by some, right? Yes, yes. So some of the, so some of the Congress from the United States Congress, they went to the camp. And then they uh, discovered all this massive of kids and just wandering around in this camp. And then they came back to state and report to the, you know, uh, to the rest of the Congress and stuff. And then they like, I think we should send some, general, you know, some generalists over there. Because this is what I discovered, very significant, you know, massive young kids, and they are just hanging out in this camp. And, and so the generalists went over and... So they started coming up with a name. So they actually, the name is actually the Lost Boys of Sudan. So it's literally, it was, uh, uh, it was, comp- you know, it was called, you know, they were just given us, like, become like our brand, very much. But the original name is Lost Boys from Peter Pan. So that's how somebody made it. On right. the name of the Peter Pan, the Lost Boys, historic. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so that's how we were put on so they, they can be. And now become a like, part of our brand. So everybody knows us, the Lost Boys of Sudan, you know. And some of the girls, even though not a lot of people always talk about that, but there's some girl was in, among ourselves too. So. And Holly, um, how how familiar is this story to you? Like, is this what a majority of refugees go through, having to traverse all these different, you know, this this uh, terrain and and go through these. You know, getting from refugee camp from country to country, bounced around? Yeah, I mean, this is like the story that we hear all the time. I think what is really important to understand is that the refugee admissions in this country are so low that they're statistically insignificant. Like it's below 0.01%, right, of the world's refugees are being accepted into the United States. So now what people are is doing is that now they're, under they're the mind. Trump administration or before? Has that correct. always been the case or is that just now? Um, historically, we've taken about 70 to 80,000, you know, during the Obama administration. There were some really mm-hmm. low dips after 9-11. Um, but, you know, we've sort of hovered around 70 to 80,000 every year. It's sort of a ceiling on refugee admissions, which is very low in comparison to the world's refugee population. But now currently, right. I think right now we're at 6,000 um, refugees who have been admitted in, in this fiscal, you know, in this fiscal cycle. So, wow. um, you know, if, when you're, when you're looking at the world's refugee population, you know, people are saying, come the legal way, come the right way. Well, there is no legal or right way to come to the United States 
through a refugee admission process. It's, it's next to impossible. You're, you're better off, you know, buying a ticket for the lottery and winning. Um, yeah, so, that's right. So with that, like most people are migrating to the U.S. borders, but that's a very privileged opportunity for people from countries like Sudan to be able to make it to the U.S.-Mexican border, right? You, right, most yeah. Most people have to come through, like, Colombia through South America, which has more liberal sort of – or Ecuador, which has more liberal um, visa policies. And then most of them, just like we heard him, are now doing this, this traverse of thousands of miles from Ecuador all the way to the U.S.-Mexican border. Um, so you're, you're hearing stories of Haitians, of people from West and East Africa traversing mm. almost impossible mm. terrain to get mm. to our, our, our border to ask for asylum the right way and are being you know, turned away now summarily um, under Trump's the, – the Center for Disease Control just did a new executive you – know, a new order saying that people can be turned away at our borders without being given the opportunity to apply for asylum. So it's like we're just an impenetrable fortress right now for the world refugee population. And once they once they get here, what kind of challenges? Because then the next thing that you hear, one of the misconceptions out there is, well, they come to our country, we put them on Medicaid, we give them money, we support them, and that's not the case. They they're given a you know some small amount. Can you guys, uh, Holly, you want to elaborate on that? And Jamie, you can kind of tell us about your experience too. Experiences that like, you know, just taking California where I live, for example, Im- immigrants are we are one of the biggest economies in the world. And the majority of that is due to our agricultural industry, which is on, you know, is completely reliant upon immigrant labor. Um, So we've created here in California, one of the world's largest economies. And to say that, you know, migration is sort of depleting our resources is just, you know, it's just, you can't even dig deeper than, you know, uh, you know, some literature on, immigration and their contributions to this economy without immigrants in our economy, our economy would completely collapse Um, with, with refugees. Obviously it's it's really, it's really hard to figure out what the contribution is because the numbers are so low that when people studied refugee, you know, contributions, obviously they're there, uh, but they're just harder to study because there's such a small percentage of the overall immigration population through no fault of their own because we have such you know, low ceilings on the number of refugees we can admit. And that's because of the, of the low success of, of refugees getting into this country, right, Ollie? Exactly, well, exactly. Jenny, um, what was your experience coming to Arizona? You weren't given, you know, a plush apartment in, Scott, you know, in downtown Scottsdale, from what I understand. Yeah, well, <laughs> what, my experience... <laughs> Yeah. Go ahead. What was the what was your experience when you came here in terms of what you're given as a refugee to get on your feet? Right. Right. So my experience. So yeah. So I'm gonna have to tell you guys. So I was under. So quote unquote, they they, they kind of just they were just kind of giving me an H. That is not the really. That's another. You know. That's another topic for another day. So they they was giving us. Uh, January 1st, 19-something, right? So this is across the world when the, because they didn't, they didn't, they didn't know, we don't have any proof of our birth certificate, you know, in, in Sudan. First of all, we were not born in, in the hospital. And then secondly, even if we have these birth certificates, they'd be like, not going to be existed al- along the walk that we did and all this stuff. Yeah. So 
because of that. So that's part of that's part of our story. So they they so I was given an age that I can be younger or older. So, but I was very lucky, and and my brother was not so lucky. So I was given uh, by the time I arrived. This is June of June 13, 1995, when I finally arrived here to U.S. to to Phoenix, Arizona. So because I was quote unquote I was under age, I was about almost like uh, 15, 16 or so at that time when I arrived. So they actually wow. assigned me with a you know with a you know with a foster parent. So I was in a foster care system with Catholic, you know, with, with, you know, with Catholic charity. Uh, at that time, it was Catholic social services. Now it's Catholic charity. So because of that, and then meanwhile, my brother, now he was over 18. Now they, they put him into the apartment. So with just a few caseworkers, a few, he, got, he was only getting three months. Three months to get on his feet. Uh, 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 and after that, they have to find him a job quickly, so he can start paying for his own apartment. Now three months. Uh, three months. Minimum. Wow. That's Not knowing the language. Yeah. Knowing that's, De- that's what now. He, yeah. Exactly. And, de- no and, and, de- and deadbeats and deadbeat dads who don't support their children can get up to six months to a year before they can get on their there feet. Oh, yep. Wow. <laughs> and I wow. know Emily said something really here that. People just think that you just given giving them everything on the Medicare. They taking advantage. No, they don't. They actually everybody start working up to three months because you gotta you actually you contributing to already to the society by paying tax dollar. You become already right. you working. You don't even know the, the, the language. You don't even know where the bus you know the bus route are. I mean, all the challenging now begin, and this one lead into literally. Uh, Leading to my, you know, into my brother's death here in Phoenix. So he was he was killed by police here in Phoenix in 1997. Because oh, part man. of that it was yep. uh, because of all of all the you know all the PTSD, all the unfamiliar things that he had to challenge. Many see, we come from, from you know from the war or whatever we went through, but uh, uh, the war is just a beginning. When when we go to whatever country we go, it just the refugees have to go through so much trauma already in their home, homeland. Now you've got to bring them here. They don't even know where to begin. And they only have three months. Nobody's showing them where to go. And that's kind of the, the source for why you, you, you guys organized the Lost Boys Center. That's right. That's right. And because of death of my brother, I said, you know what? We, uh, in 2000, we were having so many from all over, very much from all over, but we started with, you know, with the Sudanese refugees, with the Lost Boys at that, that time. So I was one of the founders of the Lost Boys Center, you know, for Arizona Lost Boys Center at that time. Now it's Arizona Lost Boys Center for Leadership Development. So that was the reason why, even though the resettlement agencies were there, they only helped for three months. Well, we kind of happy, so we kind of started this organization so we can, you know, continue support. So that way nobody struggles like what, like what happened to Simon, which is my, you know, which is my brother. And we're facing with all this trauma. Now you get the trauma to your new land, to your new world, into your new place. And you're like, what do I do? You know, literally. Meanwhile, I was having, a, I was having to become a child again uh, here with my foster care system, my foster mom. You know, God bless her. She, 
literally from no language, from zero. I haven't spoke a word of English. I don't even know how to write my own name. I never, I never gone to school. Here I am now, trying to fit in, trying to, to find my way in American school. So that's, it was my struggle. And you guys dealt with, I mean, I know that I think you said Fry's, you know, like hired a lot of um, the Lost Boys, but you guys dealt with different levels of racism, you know, something similar to what a lot of black people deal with, but to a different degree. You told me a story, I think at Arizona Mills, you were harassed and. Yeah, all the time. You know, like literally, I remember we were, I think, uh, I don't know, it was somewhere in Scottsdale. This is like, like. Like literally, in, like in 1999, I know exactly. So we went to Payless store. <laughs> so the Payless store, there was a young girl. She's walking by herself, and we have three. There, you know, like I'm short, but a lot of our guys are tall. A lot of us are over six yeah. feet. There's a lot of tall people from Sudan. So here we walk in with this tall, fantastic, dark-skinned guy coming in uh, immediately. Yeah, she just having a nice, you know, a nice wreck for like right away, this girl. And I remember she's calling the police, you know, she called the police. We didn't do anything. We're just looking for shoes. <laughs> but I'm she, glad you're able you, to you see the perce- <laughs> Yeah, you see the perception yeah. of that. Here you have these three black guys walking in into this, but huh? they're going to rob me. That was her reception. No. We're not gonna rob you. We're just buying shoes on everybody else. I'm sorry. I was gonna say uh, to I'm Emily sorry, I was gonna say, about the comment about about laughing about what Jenny was saying. You know how he has a humor about it. But you know what? I think for any minority, if you've gone through racism, you've experienced it. After you, when you look back at it, it's it it is kind of comical because it's 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 funny that how could you be afraid of somebody you don't even know. You know, how could yeah, you judge right. me if you don't even know who I am? Like, you don't even know. That's right. Like, for, for, you, for instance, your whole story there. I mean, I was born here, you know, so yeah. I have the American privilege. I could never. I mean, I have trouble, That's... you know, leaving the state and being away from my mm-hmm. family for three days. I can't even imagine yeah. what yeah. you went through, yeah. you know. And, oh, my God. I mean, that just it just amazes me, man. I mean. But I wish we could be. I could wish I could be right in front of you, bro. I'd put my arm around you, man. I'll give you a big hug. Oh, you know. Yeah, <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah. Holly, a question for you: What is what are the immigration challenges? That, so, once somebody becomes a refugee, are they do they have to continue to go through the immigration process, or are they allowed to stay here indefinitely, or what's the what happens there? Well, that's how I met Jamie. I, well, so what happens is that. It used to be that when you came as a refugee, you would automatically convert to having a green card within one year. And then you, within five years of having a green card, you can essentially apply for political, uh, excuse me, for, for citizenship. Um, but now um, that automatic process doesn't exist. You have to apply for your green card. And a lot, you know, just as Jenny was telling us that like a lot, you come here, you land, you don't speak English, you're totally disoriented, you've got to get to school, you know. You've got all these things going on that a lot of immigrants don't understand that they have to apply for that green card and they miss out on that opportunity, you know, that, that sort of that, that one year um, issue. And what happened was if, if you get into any type of like trouble, like what, what was happening when I lived in Arizona is they were rounding up a lot of the lost boys and bringing them into detention indefinitely. 
saying you just got to stay here um, and apply for your green card, which is going to take like three to four years because you didn't oh, apply wow. within that one year. And so we were like, what are we going to do? Like, we were meeting people that had been in these immigration detention centers for so long just because they had not applied for their green card within the year. Um, they basically That's said right. they fell out of status. And so we asked the Lost Boys Center to write, you know, you know, letters of recommendation and support for them. And it was, you know, some of the most powerful cases I've worked on in my career were those of the Lost Boys who were stuck in immigration detention centers because they didn't apply for the green card within one year. Um, That's right. We're now able to change that law or to change that policy, excuse me, um, and get some recognition that, that even if you don't apply for a year, it doesn't mean you fall out of status. Um, so that was, you know, so that's, you know, one of the interesting sort of conundrums in the law is like what happens after you come here as a refugee is, is that. And I think, you know, one important thing is that with a lot of trauma, men and women come to this country, especially when they have trauma as children, and sometimes that they, they have addiction issues, sometimes that there are things that happen in their lives um, that, that aren't ideal because they're not getting the support that they need. And so I think sometimes you do see this intersectionality with the criminal justice system, which is, as somebody already mentioned, you know, blacks Mm. disproportionately have the impact of the criminal justice system. If you're putting somebody here who's suffered childhood trauma, then they're going to be at exponential. All the studies we have on black immigrants are that they're exponentially more likely to end up in, in the criminal justice system and, you know, you know, just as unfortunately, Jenny's brother was murdered by the police to, to experience mm-hmm. police violence as well as incarceration. So a lot of the focus of my career has been working with black immigrants because we have to recognize that all of these systems are working together and that we really have to pause and do undo some of this country's historical harms, not only on black, but black immigrants as well. What... Um... And so it's, it, do you think in the current infrastructure for refugee resettlement, in addition to dealing with some of the more practical issues, like where are they going to live and how are they going to live, do you think that mental health is adequately addressed? I mean, we saw that's what happened with Jenny's brother. I think, Jenny, you can elaborate on this. He went into the Catholic Charities arms because he was so frustrated with the system. Is that correct? So, yeah, Absolutely. So my brother, it's kind of tragic because he actually was, he would not go to attention to harm anybody there. But, of course, he had a weapon on his hand, and the rest was story after that because, of course, how we are. But literally, the only life he thinks he knows that it's by, he, because that's the only violence that we, we kind of see in war zone. And right. Seeing all of this, that's the only way. This is the only way I can get my attention to help me. What is going to take? You know, it's, you know, this is it's like exactly it's almost like what's going on today right now in, in the street across America with the death of this uh, man. Uh, uh, George uh, Floyd. That was, yes, exactly. So mm-hmm. human, you, you said it's enough, it's enough, and you get angry so much to the point because you've been dealing with this for so long, and that's what literally like happened to my brother. That's the only way you're going to get my attention, but I, apparently that's not how you have to do it. And that's why even with these protests going on, well, we don't want to burn down building. This is not, we're not going to hear our message. Yes, you're angry. I'm angry, but we cannot 
our, we, we have to take our emotional out of all of these things. And let's try to find a way you can literally clear uh, and cross your message without uh, uh, distorting destruction, you know. But, I mean, who is I to say that, yes, everybody kind of upset with this whole systematic in America, racism, whatever the case might be. But there's a way, maybe because us as a human, when we, uh, you know, I always, and I, and I didn't learn this until like later on, is that when we are in anger, now it becomes emotion. The emotion becomes physical. The physical becomes, it's going to cause death, right? This is how we, it's always going to be, it, that's always the human. But if we can sit back and think of a way that, well, what are the ways that we can be crossing my, that I can cross my message? There's always a way when we're not angry, uh, you, you know. So because of that, so like my brother walked into the Catholic charity thinking, I'm, this is the only way I'm going to get help. Well, he doesn't realize, no, that is not going to go to you get it. You're going to get, you know, and that's how you end up getting murdered. Because, you know, it, but most of, uh, 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 most of the they have to deal with a lot of trauma. Uh, also, as we speak right now, I am very much the first generation, you know, coming as Robojis. Now I have a seven-year-old daughter. So think about this. So for how the t- there's not a lot of statistics about this, but many, the immigrants or Robojis, when they come from somewhere and they go through this a lot of trauma in their own country, guess what? The trauma is not going away until you to do something about it. And we can pass it on to our, my kids. This is right. how critical people don't. A lot of people do not realize this. It's, it's trauma within us, within me. Now I'm going to have my own children. They're going to carry the same trauma. Wait, that's, that's a disaster, generation after generation, until something has to happen to help yourself with that. So like, I used to have a lot of uh, nightmare at night for the first 10 years of my life here in America. I still that. The only thing that's helped me, I figured out the way to help me by joining athletes, you know, so I would... You know, I would be an athlete. I would attract star in the state of Arizona. I go on to college. So I also get to see counsel, counselor. I get to do things that was helping me. But my brother did not have that opportunity at all, really, because of because the time go on and I get help along the way by other people. Holly, what are, what are some of the gaps in, you know, mental health help, if, if any, that you're seeing with refugees? That, that are coming in? Yeah, so I work primarily with children who are detained and adults. Probably about 90% of my work is with children. And the mental oh. health is at such like a crisis level that when we go in to do meetings, I, I train students <laughs> um, on how to work with uh, detained children and adults. And the, the mental health is at such a crisis level that we now incorporate into our students' training how to talk to somebody who's suicidal because most of the people we go in and talk to um, have anxiety attacks, have difficulty breathing. We even had a child like reach down on my ankles and beg us not to leave and had a full blown anxiety attack. Um, So, so a lot of the information that we're gathering from people is we have to prove their asylum case. Right. And we have to ask these really re-traumatizing questions. Like why did you leave your country? Um, what, you know, what harms did you experience? If you look at the asylum application, it's just like a, a trauma questionnaire, right? And yeah. so we are going to trigger this, and we have very short amount of time to do it. Sometimes we have 20, like 20 minutes to meet with a client. Sometimes we have more, right? 
And we have to get, you know, very, very um, in-depth in someone's life very, very quickly with not a lot of build-up to trust. Um, but, you know, you know, it, it's, it's, there's, the, there's the side of it of the refugees who, are, who have been admitted and out in, the, out, in the, out in the free world who aren't getting the services they need. But also, most of the people applying for asylum right now are incarcerated in immigration detention centers, whether it's children or adults. So if you're talking about this migration pattern of a 1,000 miles walking on foot, then you're re-traumatizing people by putting them in a, in a, literally in a cage. Um, That's right. And, you know, we've, I, I've seen kids who try to hang themselves themselves. Like we've oh, seen man. kids, like when I talk to kids and they have cuts all up and down their wrists. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you were talking about mental health, I mean, it's, it's not only like we've, we've just completely rendered invisible and inhuman the immigrants in this country, and they feel it. They feel it on a really personal level, like you have criminalized me, and especially the children who are, you know, their brains aren't even fully developed yet, cannot wrap their brains around um, why they're being treated like this. And, you know, there was one kid who was very, very young who, you know, I gave him my phone number, and he's like, I just want to call you at night and just, like, for an hour on the phone, just want to sit there and hear, like, the sounds of the home because I, I, I'm not going to be able to mentally make it through this journey. Um, and so, you know, it's and with adults, too. Like, I've worked with one in, per, per person in particular who's from Ethiopia, and he had a full-blown panic attack before going into court. Um, the judge actually had to come into the holding cell and talk him into coming into court because he was so afraid of losing his case because he knew if he got sent back, he would die. So, I mean, we're talking about, like, unimaginable trauma um, across the spectrum of ages, um, and it's, it's really tragic. And what's really most tragic is it's in, invisible to so many Americans. Like when I walk out of a detention center into the free world, it's like I'm living in another polar universe. And right. so it's, it's really important yep. for us to make that visible, just like what, you know, we're doing here today is to make this trauma visible and hopefully make immigrants, you know, appear more human because we're all interconnected in our destiny. You know, I'm, I'm so curious, Holly, because we know that Jing had to, he wasn't, there was no option for him to walk into that nightmare that nightmare was just kind of just thrown on him and his whole family. And with, the, so, with such a low success getting refugees here um, and, and, and helping them, getting them the, the sources that they need so that they can develop into being, you know, trying to at least try to be normal again. How do you keep your sanity with this? Like, I mean, I, I'm, so, I, I'm so thrown back and so amazed and, and appreciative of, of, of folks like you that are willing to take on a fight that doesn't even seem winnable at times. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that most immigration lawyers are, are doing well with their moment, mental health. Right. But I think that one of the things that keeps us checked is like that we're working with people like Janie um, and, you know, and we think like, well, what, who am I to complain when, you know, I've been, I'm here to fight for somebody who could actually die if they're deported. I'm, I'm right. here to fight for a kid who's, like, suicidal, who made this thousand-mile track alone to come to this country. Like, who am I to sit around and, you know, you know, it's like one of my friends always just tells me, like, just check yourself. Like, get real. I mean, we do need 
mental health resources for like secondary trauma, but it's nothing at all in comparison to the trauma I think that our clients are going through. And I think a lot of us feel that on a really um, passionate level, um, but it is important to also just take time for yourself. I'm wondering, um, as we see what's happening, you know, of course on the news, I, I don't want to get too into all of the politics on this particular uh, show. I definitely want to address it in the future uh, very soon, but um Janie, has it been traumatizing to see what's happening right now and, and the police shootings and, and how how have you coped over the last few days um, as as things have really kind of hit the fan and and rightfully so and, and... Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, it, when you know when these type of things happen uh, you know Emily as you know it's absolutely it's we traumatize all over again here we go it's like uh, it's like it just happened like yesterday. It's like, it's like, uh, what happened to my brother Simon? It's like, man, it, this thing it just continues. So it's a very hard to contain yourself. Like, like I literally, uh, uh, I was having a discussion. You know, like yesterday we were, we were in this conference call with all a lot of our uh, men. Now, now we're not boys anymore. So we were talking about some of these topics and how traumatized. We traumatize are they they are to us and and now and now and now also we have our own children you know now we men uh, some of the laws, we are in our forties so we're not boys anymore and we have our own family we're dividing with our own family now you have you can have your son and your and your boy walk on the street you're not safe so we were talking about that so. It's a, yeah, it's been really hard to watch, and I, I literally not been watching a lot of the news on it because it just. So I literally just been going to hike and, you know, you know, and doing some other stuff just to try to get my head out of not watching the news and not not want to read anything on purpose on it. Jenny, does it prepare you though, seeing what's going on? To like, has it prepared you? Mentally, what to say to your to your kid, you know, to your child, and and absolutely. maybe trying yes. to ease your absolutely discussion. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Now that's why. So because the topic, you know, I mean, the topic, it just always, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it prepared me more than ever because now I know what I can say now. You know. You know. Holly, um, what would you say is the biggest misconception about refugees in in our country? I mean, I think the biggest misconception is that um, people, there's a way to do things abroad, like in their home country and come here the legal way. And like we just, you just hear that rhetoric all the time of like, well, my grandfather came here the right way (laughs) and yours, you know, you know, why are you showing up at our border asking for asylum? There is no external access to these systems, um, you know, for, you know, 99.9% of the world's refugee population. There is no legal way to come to this country to ask for protection. Um, and, you know, so I think that that's a huge misconception. And I think that, you know, the misconception is also that, um, that we have even access to political asylum systems at our border. Our border is completely shut down. And not only that, but we have changed our asylum law under the Trump administration to the extent that there's 
not even a legal basis to get asylum anymore. They're rejecting the vast, like over 90% of the claims of the border. Um, this was not the, this was the exact opposite under Obama. So it's not only just that it's inaccessible, even once you get here and are able to claim it, they've completely annihilated asylum law um, such that it, I don't even recognize it anymore. I mean, I have to, I can't even teach from a textbook anymore. I have to teach from, like, the day-to-day changes in the law because that's how frequent um, there is, like, an annihilation of immigration laws in this country. So people can just understand that there is no legal, you know, right way to come. And the other thing is look at your own family history because I guarantee for white Americans that your grandparents and forefathers did not come here the right way. They probably showed up through Ellis Island, and migrated here, um, and then they were able to naturalize, you know, almost immediately. There was no process. There was no vetting. There was no fingerprinting. So, you know, if you go back and look at your own white family histories, you came here the same way everyone else is coming here other than Native Americans, right? So I think that white people really need to do some introspection on this and um, understand, like, their historical privilege and their own, like, you know, looting of Native American lands that gives them the opportunities in this country. Yep. Well, even just listening to you guys has, has like, it's been, you know, it's sad. And I know these stories and it still makes me sad, but there's some hope that there are people like you two fighting for um, the rights of asylees and refugees. And, um, and it's just, I, I don't know if, if, um, Holly is also the wife of one of my friends. Uh, I don't know if he's told you what a big fan I am. This is the first time I've actually gotten to talk with you, but um, I just so admire the work you've done, and I'm so, like, thankful for you. And, and Jan, and you too, man. You guys are – we really need people like you, and it makes me feel some kind of hope that there are people out there fighting and, and hope that under a future administration, hopefully uh, in the very near future, we can try to fix some of these broken systems and, and – Help help people the way that you know we're allegedly supposed to be doing. Right, you know. And can I add something really, really quickly? I just give my add. Also, you know, so the so the world with Robert G with all the problems going on all over the world, they they they, they estimated about seven million Robert G's worldwide, right? So right. Out of the seven million, world worldwide, and whatever the country they are, and whatever they are, actually only get when through the betting and actually whatever the right way could and could to come in, only three percent get to make it to whatever the country is. And I was one of those three percent. Not a lot so I know that the concession out there, people oh, they're just pouring into our border. No. It's only three percent actually get to make it through betting process that is intensive. Not everybody make it. Because I do know some people I left in the camp and they still until these days, they never made it. They fall with just fall in the crack. You know, I, I've done so many different interviews uh, with the sport that I cover, and I got to tell you, this is the most heart wrenching. My stomach is literally turning. This never happened to me to me before, where my stomach is just turning and turning and stuff. And um, I have a question for you, Holly, uh, which I applaud the work you're doing and, and the courage that Janie, you, you you're, you're on here and. I'm so sorry for your loss, man, and I, I just couldn't imagine that. That ah, it's just terrible. But my question for Holly is this: <clears throat> What is the most uncomfortable truth 
you, you have had to say to your clients that are children, you know, about the reality of them not being able to come into this country? Um, I think one of the hardest thing you have to tell someone is that, like, a lot of times detention coerces de- decisions. Like, they just can't handle being in a cell anymore or in a cage anymore. And sometimes, like, they tell me, I can't take this anymore. I'm going back home. And then you have to kind of go into court and tell the judge that this person wants deportation. Like, for example, I worked with a kid who was, he walked all the way up from Honduras, and he was kidnapped by the Mexican drug cartels. And, like, at one point he was forced to watch another kid being chainsawed apart who had snitched. Oh, And he... He wanted to come here and get protection as a trafficking victim. He was able to escape that night. He ran away through the night, came to the border. The kid was a mess. I mean, he was, like, psychologically a mess. And they kept him in detention. They they sent him around to different centers. They tried to forcibly medicate him. And finally, he just couldn't take it anymore and accepted deportation. Um, And then he called me after he'd been deported, and he was on the streets crying, saying that he had nowhere to go. And it's just like having to like be in the system where you know it's intentionally constructed to not recognize the most vulnerable children. These are the kids that we should be protecting. And like our, our, our laws say that we're supposed to protect them. I mean, they're children and they've been trafficked. And yet we're putting them in a system where they give up because the conditions in these jails are so horrific. And, right. I mean, they literally you know, fought just, their will you know, to so get I out think of that there. That's really hard. Yeah. Yeah, they literally fought their will to get out of there, and then it's like the icing on the cake. We just break, you know, finish it off to finally break that will right. for them to go back. Oh God. Yeah, so I think it's really hard to see that system break down and know that it's our government is intentionally doing this to the kids, and it, it's it really it just breaks my heart to know that like we don't have anything to offer most people anymore in terms of protection. You know, America's so infatuated with reality shows. Maybe this is something they should do is put cameras in the courts, in the detention centers, so they can actually see what's going on. And maybe it might change a lot of the hearts of these, you know, privileged Americans that are over here bitching and moaning about their life situations and, you know, what, uh, what the immigrants are doing to this country. I don't know. This is just crazy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think, I, think, I, think, I think hearing the real world, like of Janie and other people, I think is, is what changes most people's minds because when you when I bring people into court even including my students they can't believe what they're seeing and that's even some pretty like conservative students that I've taught over the years the best way to make change is for people to hear the narratives like what you're doing in the show not me but from the immigrants you know themselves right Holly what what can what can we do the the listeners what can we do to to help refugees in our communities? I mean, maybe Janie could answer that probably better than I could. I don't know. Janie, what can we do? You know, so a lot of, it, it gives them some emotional uh, support that it's welcome people. People are people. Welcome people. <laughs> we cannot turn our back on people, whether you volunteer cheering through the local agency, RRC, Catholic Charity, there's so many other churches now are getting involved. Uh, there's so many immigrants. I mean, 
uh, let's welcome people. Let's be a mentor to somebody, to, to a family. I know a lady named Mary. Mary, she, she's so sweet. She has uh, her husband and her, they run Scottsdale, uh, Northridge Bible Scottsdale Church in Northridge uh, Scottsdale over there. Man, she's, every day she knows there's a newcomer coming into their apartment. She go every Saturday. She go and just sit down and talk to these women. And she's adapting these. Many people can do that. She, uh, she actually just recently, she adapted these Syri- Syrian refugees that we just arrived. And helping them, finding them, you know, to better my t- telling, because that's the biggest, the biggest thing when you first get here is that support. You need that support in the beginning. Because that's the only way somebody that can show you there's a way to go. You don't just find out on your because you didn't know where the bus. You need that support, and I think yeah. with all the listening out there to your local, uh, find out your local uh, area to have uh, go get go get involved, go volunteer. You know, right. like be a um, big sister, and you know, be a big sister, a big brother, because it's already happening here. You know, to somebody. I just want to thank you both for coming on uh, to my first show. This is a, it was a, already a powerful, powerful show, and I just so appreciate um, you taking the time, both of you, Danny and Holly, on your Sunday to talk about these things that are, I mean, with the news being so heavy, and then you add this on top of it, it's, it's. I just appreciate you both so much uh, for making a difference in, in the world and, and for coming on to talk to us. You definitely made an well, impact in my life. Yeah, you guys definitely made an impact in my life. You know, we always say, we always talk about heroes, and I'm glad I met both of you guys. You guys are definitely heroes in my book. I applaud you guys. Keep up the great strength that you guys are both bringing, uh, the fight to, to try to change this. And I recommend a lot of the uh, Make America Great people, um, if there's an opportunity for them, maybe we should come up with something where they could take a course and go to one of these courts with you, Holly. You know, maybe help out, change their <laughs> minds a bit here. You know what I mean? I gotta say, I, I, yeah. my eyes are filled. My eyes are. Li- I've never. This has never happened to me. Um, my my kids and my wife sometimes say that I'm the hardest person to to make uh, cry, and I I literally have tears in my eyes right now, man, from hearing this story. And wow, I, yeah, I, I yeah. I'm sorry to have done that to you, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, um, sorry for you out, Dave. <laughs> I know. You know what though? You know what? Um. I'm kind of like the Debbie Downer, the Debbie Downer of the, the <laughs> No, no, this is great. I think this is something that's very much needed because, like I said, as myself and, and you, know, um, you know, born here, you forget. You forget. Like my mother, you know, had to migrate here as well as much as other folks in my family. And uh, you, it, you know, you, you forget where you come from or what the struggles that our ancestors did to get here. Uh, Jenny, dude, you're, you're an awesome person, bro. You're awesome, bro. Well, thank you. you know? thank and your you. brother's down. He's smiling down. He's very proud of you. I could, man, yeah. I've lost the words, man. Yeah, thank thank you. you guys so much. Yeah. Thank you guys. Yeah, thank, thank you guys, guys for so much. Me and the show. We'll yeah, follow up in a little bit. Maybe after the election, we can, we can hear back from you and see how hopefully things are changing and, and for the better. Yeah. yeah. And everybody thank you for to vote. Yeah. We need to, everybody yeah, to vote. vote. <laughs> Any person, citizen, they need to go vote. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, everybody.
Have a great day. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Uh, Holly, it's Bye. good to hear your voice, Holly. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Bye, guys. Um, that was Ooh. that was really amazing. So I'm so thankful for them for coming on for my first show. And Dave, I'm thankful to you for giving us this, this platform. And um, I, I, I briefly definitely, think- definitely hate you right now, to tell you the truth. I'm just yeah, kind of I know. <laughs> No, I don't. Until you know, next week. I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't know. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. Do you know, um, uh, Holly Cooper uh, and Jenny is just, uh, they're amazing. Um, just for how they can just keep their composure of, of what they've, you know, I mean, Danny, just what he's been through to get here and to have a brother lost after finding him. I, I, it's, yeah. I don't even know how you can like wake up and try to be positive and, and, and even laugh at some of the things that you have been dared to face, you know? Um, and that they both, wow. you know, that Danny had kids in this world and, and look how it's, I do want to say one thing. Um, fuck Jake Paul, first of all. Sorry about my language, oh. but um, I don't don't appreciate him coming into my state and uh, using this trauma and and this uh, these protests as a me- medium to get his uh, get viewers for his YouTube channel. Um, I just wanna I just wanna say that um, I don't think I don't think people you know I, I think it's really easy if you've never dug in on racism and, and systemic, you know, institutionalized racism to say, oh, these, these guys, they shouldn't be looting. They shouldn't be rioting. And maybe they're right. You know, maybe they shouldn't be looting. But at the same time, um, I've seen a lot of people that I didn't see speak up for George Floyd or didn't see them speak up for Trayvon Martin or any of the other folks. And I didn't see them speak up, but now they're speaking up saying, look, I I want justice for George Floyd, but this isn't the way to go about it. And these are a lot of the same people that, you know, talked about, you know, kneeling. I, you know, we all want the police to stop killing people, but kneeling during the anthem is disrespectful. So the only thing I would ask is one of two things. In your, your Facebook status, when you say, you know, I, I sympathize with the murder of George Floyd and he needs justice. Just stop there. Don't say but, just stop. We know how you feel about looting we know that you don't think it's good I don't think it's good I don't think it's good for business owners but I'm not you know I'm not a victim of racism in any way so I can't you know speak to that um but if you just stop you just say you know what I and I hope that you know if you just stop there like it'll you'll mean it like look I really do want justice for George Floyd we don't need to hear the rest we already know how you feel um or better yet you know instead of posting about your opinion on it and how we should do this and we shouldn't do this, maybe just ask the question of, of your Facebook friends, especially the friends of color. You know, everybody always says, I got a black friend, you know, um, I have, I, I have a lot of black people in my life. Okay. Ask them, ask them what you can do, what you can learn to support them. And I think that's, right. that's something that we as allies can do. And, you know, like I said, we already know everybody's take on looting. Um, we get it. Well, uh, you know, here's the thing, though. I, my heart is broken. Here's the whole thing about looting. You know, um, 
One of my favorite hip-hop artists of all time is Tupac Shakur. He was way before his time. Never heard of him. A lot of folks haven't, you know. <laughs> Ideally, he had, the ideas that he had was actually, was always on point. And uh, one of his interviews, he had mentioned about, you know, the writing and what happens, okay. And, he's, and he made, it, made perfect sense, okay. Um, because this is how us minorities, we feel sometimes. It's like he said, hey, let's say we had this big hotel. And the, the, the wealthiest live all the way in the top floor and the poorest goes level, 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 right? But the first couple of levels is the, the, the wealthiest. They have the best food and the greatest food and they're eating. And everybody down below is struggling to get something to bite. And they come over and knock on the door and they're like, hey, man, like, you know, we're really, really hungry. You know, can you, can you, can you give us something? You know, throw some scraps. And they're like, yeah, come back later. No, learn how to ask. Learn how to ask us nicer. You're knocking too hard on the door, right? And, it, you know, and after so many times of knocking on the door, he says, like, what do you expect us to do then? We're not being heard. You're not giving us scrap. You're not giving us a, a plate of, of food and all that. So the next thing that comes down is going to come down is we break through the door and we start taking shit that we want, you know, because we're not being heard. That's where we're at. That's what happens when you decide not to allow a certain group of folks to be heard. You know, I mean, I see a lot of people that are, that are not minorities, that are not black or Latinos, that are using Martin Luther King's words at a certain, like, you know, a little meme or, or, or a, small, a, a very small soundbite, but they're not playing the whole speech of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King understood why the rioting was happening and, what, you know, and, and, and what was the cause of it. It's, you know, the people that are now crying about the looting and all that, you know, they're crying about it now, but what did you do to, to prevent it from not happening? You didn't listen before. So, in my opinion, a lot of these Make America Great people, it's time for you to sit down and shut the fuck up already. You already did enough damage. You've done the damage. Now own up to it. You're pissed because businesses are being burnt down. You were pissed because businesses weren't open. Your president wanted the, the country to reopen. Guess what? It's reopened. Maybe not in the way you wanted it, but it's reopened. Well... Um, I, all I can say is that I stand with the protesters. I stand with the families of people who have experienced violence from, um, police officers and, and racial violence. And I hope, you know, I didn't want to get into it this week because it is pretty fresh. Um, in a future episode, we'll have Tahim Bryant on. He is the creator of Equal Standard, the movie that I was working on with him. Um, that really actually addresses a lot of these things and, and we can have a, an in-depth talk about it then because right now it's just too, it's, it hurts too much. And I think um, I'm hoping that our, our country can heal from this soon, but it's going to, it's going to require that people start taking this, you know, uh, stop saying when you see a, a video of a black guy being killed with a knee on his neck, stop saying, well, I wonder what happened before that, because whatever it was, <laughs> wow. yeah. it wasn't capital punishment worthy, you know, worthy. So, um, and actually the, and you I've know, in that. his case, huh? And I, I'm seeing that too, you know, where yeah. I knew that was coming though, you know, immediately. Yeah. It's a standard. Need, there's, yeah. There's people, Deflect. the same people. That, I get it, you know, and, and I get, I think people are scared. I think people are, are worried about change, but you know, I, I don't remember the quote. I don't know exactly the number of what it was, but they said, you know, the the oppressor never, like, 
eased up on the oppressed. You know, the oppressed had to to rise up and and be heard, and that's what's happening right now. So, um, hopefully, this country the damage. Has never healed. To, yeah, and I don't know. It's hard to feel like it ever will. Like I feel a little despair this week. Um, with all of this, we live but, in a bizarre world. You know, we're trying to keep. Truth, you know. Yeah, I'm trying to keep positive. Um, please take care of yourselves and your family. If you're out protesting, you know, make sure you're you're as much as possible, like you know, taking care of yourself, drinking water, um, being safe, and taking care of the people with you and around you. Um, and uh, I guess that's all I want to say on it right now. So we'll we'll talk about this more. But Dave, I appreciate you giving me this platform on Leave It in the Ring Network. Uh, radio network too. Uh, host Emily talks. And um, sorry, this week was a little bit of a downer. I had a couple people say, "Oh, I can't wait! It's going to be so funny." And sorry to disappoint you. This isn't that week, but uh, you know, we'll we'll get into some happier topics as time goes on. Yeah, most most definitely. I'm looking forward to it. You know, but yeah, you know, I'm also with the protesters, and you know, I'm against uh, police brutality. Uh, I, I hate racism. Um, it's just so unfortunate we can't all look at each other as, as brothers and sisters. Uh, we could definitely turn things around if we, if we just looked at everything as human. But just really quick, um, guys, don't forget the COVID-19 still hasn't went away. So if you're out there protesting, yes. be sure to get back and sanitize yourself. Make sure that you're not bringing it home to grandma or grandpa. You know, we still got to act humane in some way, in some sense, in this bizarre world that we live in, you know, and, uh, I only wish the best for everybody, you know, even, even the, the, even for the racist fools out there. I, I hope one day you guys can look back and say, boy, was I an idiot. Boy, was I dumb. You know, yeah, I, I, or I just, wrong and... right. I just can't, ima- I feel, you know, I feel so bad for the most arrogant fools out there because I always wonder like, how do you like, you're, you're so consumed with that. Like, how do you even live life? How do you enjoy it? <laughs> you enjoy yeah. the things that are around you but again it was my pleasure Emily I'm glad that we're and that my, you're finally doing this you know yeah yeah we've been talking about it for a number of years um Dave what's your you want to give your uh social media account uh it's just leave it a ring boxing uh, okay. don't be offended if I don't respond I'm very I'm, I'm, I'm hardly on I know I know I mean you know well, I, I always get the email in the hours leading up to the show this morning, Dave wasn't answering my messages. And as it turns out, I had him blocked on my phone somehow. So he was calling me and getting my voicemail. And uh, yeah, so sorry about that. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Emily Box at Emily Boxing. Um, thank you guys so much. And uh, hope you'll tune in again next week. We'll try to have a more positive topic next week. Take care. There you go. All right, now I'm gonna go grab all my tissues and just go in my corner okay. and get in a fetal <laughs> Hang in there, get in a fetal fetal position. Thanks, Emily. All right, folks, you guys all take care. See you guys next week. <laughs>